look at the cost of acquisition in China, it'd be by far the highest in the world. So to acquire a new customer, and then if you weigh up the lifetime value of that customer, uh, if you're not actually managing to retain them, you can burn and lose money very quickly. Welcome to Startup West, the podcast about building scalable tech startups in sunny Western Australia. My name is Carly Norman. And I'm Charlie Gunningham. And in this episode, we're talking with James Williamson, one of the co-founders of Perth-based ag tech startup, Latitude 28. So good afternoon, James, and welcome to Startup West. It's Carly. Great to be here. Can you briefly tell us a little bit about Latitude 28, what it does, and how it's going so far? Uh, Latitude 28, uh, in short, we're a direct-to-consumer beef exporter. Uh, so we've laid in a number of different technology aspects to the business to improve the marketability. I think at the end of the day, we're selling a product. So that's the number one focus. So we have developed a blockchain application to enhance that traceability. But, you know, we are obviously answering food security concerns with that. But for us, the actual reason behind it is to create, obviously, a better marketable product. So are you one of these farm-to-plate blockchain food type? Providers, is that one of the thousand sort of people <laughs> in that space? Uh, yeah, look, we're not actually producing everything that we sell, right. so we are connecting to the producer and um, obviously creating that market and the story. Um, so we we sort of take the product from start to finish and, and are the end retailer of our own product in China. Um, not to say we're solely focused on China, but it is a it's number so one you focus. Take it- you take the processed beef product already through to the market in China. Yep. So we've right. sort of do a bit of both. We do take from farm and then obviously, you know, see it all the way through and, it, and create that sort of transparency for a consumer to know where it came from. Ah, oh, so when you're talking about the – so you're using blockchain at the moment to create transparency. So when the end consumer can come across your product, what does that allow them to find out about it? Yeah, so what it does is it creates a, a chain of custody to know that it is the product, in fact, that the the packaging says it is, uh, and then they can sort of see the number of participants involved with the process of getting it to them. I think, uh, look, and we're, we're pretty much realist when it comes to blockchain. We've been selling that product for a while. So we we can pop a few myths around what blockchain does and doesn't do. And look, what it does is um, it does involve a number of other participants that are brought into that chain that we don't control. Therefore, it's just just sort of distributes uh, a number of people saying that they handled it at this point and this point. So it's not, mm. uh, you know, if you look back to what's happened in the past, you, you put something on a packaging and the consumer is got no other choice but to read and believe. At the moment, yep. they can sort of see. So that through an right. app or how do they, like the end consumer, how, can they, how do they know that this ribeye beef is yeah, well legit? Not, uh, not so much an app. It, it's more sort of on a web, web application right. because okay. apps... China, difficult. Um, right. yeah. So for, from that perspective, uh, yeah, it's sort of uh, available for them to just see from a web app. And the end consumer is retail, supermarket, restaurant, hotels, all of the above? All the, all the anyone. Above. Um, no, no, it'd be you, Charlie. So, I'd be a person, yeah, individual person, person yeah, in so China. We sell, yeah, direct to the consumer. Right off your website? Yeah, no. A, again, we work on a number of platforms. Ah. So... Uh, look, as a, a foreign company, you, you can't actually have an e-commerce ah, element right. to your website. Uh, there's a number of licenses that we just can't get. So therefore, we leverage existing platforms where you can set up your own store, but the financial transaction is then controlled by them. Mm. We, we complete the sale and send it to the consumer, but we don't. So we just sort of direct link to that platform when we create the sale. Right. Okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously you've mentioned just now um, that you do a lot of your business with China. Australia is actually not your primary market at all. Um, And there are some, I think, real challenges um, culturally, legally, and a number of things like that as well with working in a different country. What have been some of the challenges that you found and how have you managed to work around that? Uh, Yeah, challenges. Well, we probably don't have time for the amount of challenges. (laughs) Uh, For us, I think uh, culturally there is, uh, you know, a separation between Australia and China, but there's also a lot of similarities. I think um, everyone wants to have value for money in terms of what they purchase. I think, uh, you know, China for us is an exciting market. Uh, Reese, my brother and I, the other founder or one of the other founders of the business, uh, have spent a lot of time up there. I think, um, you know, doing business in China is – if you can do it and continue to do it, it's full of challenges and that's probably what makes it a huge barrier to entry uh, in that uh, a lot of people probably wouldn't see out the um, the number of sort of roadblocks that you do hit and I think you've just got to go in expecting that and, um, and they're not going to go away and you've just got to constantly evolve to improve. And it's been going three years or so? Yeah, as a business, we it was founded in 2017. Uh, it was sort of a collaboration between Jared Morton he had an export license and was exporting and Reese and I had a consultancy doing a number of in- international sort of things. Uh, and because of our family background in livestock, uh, we thought it would be a great opportunity with our experience with China to sort of, uh, you know, engage and, and operate together and we created the company and brand. Mm. And then it sort of evolved over time from something where we were trading product into the market to the end game was always to be a direct-to-consumer Right brand, uh, and then that's where the sort of tech advancement sort of went to do that. And I think one thing I think uh, that is a misconception with a lot of people use the term direct to consumer, and I'm not sure if I get the definition mm-hmm. right, but I believe a lot of people are consumer facing brands, so their brand makes it to a consumer in that they see it. A direct to consumer brand, in my mind, is someone who sells it to the consumer, and that's what we do. Uh, there's yep. very few people in our space in China doing that. And Australian beef would have a very high regard in China. Like it, it comes with quite a good cachet and you get a good money for it. Yeah, it does. It, it, look, it's, it's, a, it's a, the aspirational trophy product and yeah. that's by no means anything that we've done in our marketing to create that demand. That's from the toils of, you know, yesteryears of, uh, you know, great agricultural, um, you know, providers that have created that. And that goes across the board of every sort of agricultural product Australia produces. People perceive it as being great. So, you know, we are fortunate. I do and probably have been quoted in saying it before, we're fortunate that we're, you know, three Australian guys that are selling Australian beef, not three, you know, not to, to disregard Brazil, but, you know, mm-hmm. they're probably not having the same market sort of um, sentiment as what we do. So yep. we're, we have an advantage. Is that where main competitors from, from Brazil? Mm. Brazil uh, have a lot of product in the market, absolutely. America's yep. coming back into the market. Uh, New Zealand have product in the market. Uruguay, Argentina, everyone's there right. in, in a way. So it's not, um, yeah, you know, one type of But you're one of a few Australian players in this direct-to-consumer market. Is that right? Yeah, we, we would be one of the few people. Um, there's a lot of Australian brands up there that are consumer-facing, right. uh, but the difficulties of being a direct consumer, so holding that end retail uh, element adds a whole level of complexities and cost. Um, like when you look at the cost of acquisition in China, it'd be by far the highest in the world. So to acquire a new customer and then if you weigh up the lifetime value of that customer, uh, if you're not actually managing to retain them, 
you can burn and lose money very quickly. So right. it's all around the ability to engage with that end consumer and if you're not doing it successfully yet you're acquiring them to create that initial sale, um, you are going to go backwards. So it, it does take a lot of focus and, and a very, um, you know, very, what's the word for it? a team that um, is, is well purely focused on in enhancing that consumer experience, I think. Right. Because yeah. um, yourself and your co-founder, Reese, have both lived and worked slash studied in China previously. Do you think that that experience was a major contributor to your success in the market? Oh, look, oh, and I would, wouldn't use the word success because um, we've got a long <laughs> way to go. But we're, look, let's just say we're in the market, um, and which is a success in its own merit <laughs> that um, we're there and we're making it work. I think Reese and I, yeah, living in China, um, Reese speaks Mandarin and, and does – if you look at our, uh, our company now and you spend a week in our, our business, you'd almost think we're a movie production company. So we have mm. a, a set kitchen set studio. Uh, he works with Miranda. Miranda's a – a Chinese national but has been in Australia for a while now. She had her own TV show for 10 years in China. Um, so she's essentially the director of Reese now. And, you know, that level of engagement um, isn't saying where people say I'm an engaging brand and it's a bit of a throwaway line. I think for us we live and breathe it. We live and breathe every comment. Um, and, and we are very focused on creating an ecosystem um, where consumers can actually reach out to the brand owner and, and um, have those discussions that they want. So I think I recall you saying you very kindly um, did a panel talk for us um, about expanding into Asia at the end of last year down at Flux um, and you told a fantastic story about a video um, that helped launch your success, which was I believe it was literally cooking a steak. Yeah, we, we did have a, another little uh, secret product there. We had a big crayfish on top of the steak. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, so I think uh, I think that had two and a half million views and still gets a lot of traction today. Mm. And that's just Reese cooking a steak, one of our steaks down at City Beach. Uh, you're obviously talking in Mandarin and, um, you know, that had something like 4,000 comments on it. So when we uh, – we are at the coalface of consumer engagement with um, – the ability to do that, and look, you've got to be fresh with your content. You've got to work multiple um, different uh, social platforms. Obviously, there's not one platform that works in China that works here. So we're across four or five, and uh, and we're only really at the the you know the tip of the the mountain there. In that, well, not the tip, the opposite of that. We're at the bottom. Um, <laughs> is like uh, you've got to be fresh. You've got to have new stuff, and you've um, they the 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 actual attention. Right, that you can achieve from a customer is, is quite quick. Uh, they, right. They're very um, right now. The the Douyin, which is Douyin, bought TikTok, um, so that sort of initiated in China, and it has evolved a lot more in China compared to where it is now. Uh, but you know, those thirty second videos or one minute to two minutes. I think what they do up there is if you've got a certain amount of fans, you can expand to a five minute and and beyond. But um, hmm. you, you've only got a small amount of time to really capture that audience, and that's on Douyin and we have content that works for Douyin where it's entertaining. We have other content which is more educational around what you're cooking that works on other platforms. So, mm. yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a whole new world, isn't it? It really <laughs> is. It really is. So are you um, born WA, raised WA, come from a family of livestock farmers going way back? Way back, uh, I'm yes. I'm guessing so yes. 
Yeah, as far back as I know, my great grandfather was uh, quite a big uh, cattleman, and he was on the Australian Meat Board, and right. uh, and did his a big part for industry in his day. Uh, and then that followed through to my grandfather was um, state livestock manager of elders, and my old boys was livestock agent as well, and been in, in the game for his whole life. And and Reese and I have never actually prior to this worked in agriculture. We didn't. Yeah, you know, we've done many of other things. But you would have grown up on the farm, would you? Or no, because he's an agent, not uh, a farmer. Yeah, so they usually cut their teeth in, in a lot of country towns. Right. Um, and he now the old boy's back in Mora where he has the agency, so he's, he's based there. Um, so, yeah, in terms of like, yeah, growing up around it, like, uh, you know, from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock every night at my house was the old boy talking talking shop to farmers. <laughs> so, yeah, I suppose it is in somewhat ingrained and, and yep. obviously always lived in the country. Uh, and, you know, went to boarding school and so very right. close to the country in that, that well, essence. Talking about school, what what mm. were you into at school? And I'm trying to – because often when you meet entrepreneurs, you, you follow it all the way back. They were showing signs of it at school. So what were some of your favourite subjects? Were you into sport? Were you – Favourite subjects, I think I, I – I liked economics and English right. – um, Signs of being an entrepreneur. Look, yeah, yeah, I can imagine there was signs early on. Uh, Any leadership roles or anything like that? Not so much leadership roles, no. Um, Yeah, I'd sort of, what, yeah, like I I started like my part-time work as a a kid very young. Right. And that was just purely because I wanted my own money and freedom and and things like that. I think, um, you know, so watching the money save and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't have a good – like I think I saved $1,000 when I was 13 and um, put it on a specky uh, mining stock at the uh, direction of my <laughs> boss at the time and uh, lost it all. Oh. <laughs> Not the so first in WA. Yeah, there's a hard, hard oh, learning pretty young. Wow. Yeah. It's a whole $1,000. Yeah. Went. That's a funny story but we wouldn't get into it. But he actually <laughs> opened it up. This is before chess or anything. So he opened it up at, um, where I'm from in, in Geraldton. Everyone knows me as Jamie. He opened it up as Jamie Williamson and my real name's James. So um, there was, it was still there but I could never actually pull the money. It went to $200 or something. I could never pull the money out because this guy doesn't exist. Jamie. Jamie. Oh, so, well, there's a lesson. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> so boarding school and yep. then after school, what to, because you weren't in this until three years ago, so I'm assuming what was the mm. career trajectory to there? From, yeah, yeah, so uh, went to uni. Uh, well, I took a year off between uni, straight out of school. Went a gap year. A gap year. Yeah, yeah. mine. <laughs> I started actually at UWA and did about a month and decided no, this nah. I need a break. Uh, what and were you then doing? What were you studying? Commerce. Right. Yep. So then I took a year off, went up north, worked with an earth moving company in very remote areas of WA, and you know that was you know grow up quick sort of stuff. And yeah. Came back and did the commerce degree, but I actually transferred to Curtin. Curtin had just started the entrepreneurship program at that time, uh, which to me sounded interesting, and I did marketing and entrepreneurship. Um, yeah, no, I think it was great. Like entrepreneurship as when I was doing it, it was really just a study of other people and, and what they are doing, which was quite exciting. Mm-hmm. And then out of there, I my mum's always had a number of small businesses through her time and she had some uh, products that she wanted to manufacture and start to wholesale. So I worked with her to set up the manufacturing in China and Vietnam. And um, so that was, you know, oh, wow. it was fun and, uh, mm. you know, like a lot of learnings and there, I suppose. You can see the seeds of Latitude 28 right there. Yeah. Little bits yeah. of it coming together. Absolutely, yeah. yeah it, it is a bit of a change. So I was, in, you know, in China in 2006 um, we are working with a number of different manufacturers to get sort of things that she'd wanted to do in her 
like creative ideas and we put those and uh, you know, like, geez, learned a lot, um, mm. lost a lot of money and all the rest of it. Mm. In that, wow. that it, it was good. But, um, yeah, in the business sense, it was great to have that international exposure and that probably started, uh, you know, a, a bit of a yearning to learn more about China. Uh, right. Then I went and worked with a company that was also doing a similar thing, sort of um, mm. producing stuff in China. Uh, so it was all in reverse to what I'm doing now. That was bringing products in from China, manufacturing mm. there and in. What was it that really interested you about China? As a as a space and as a market compared to the other countries that you were working in, uh, look, yeah, I suppose we were. I was actually linking two factories together: one in Vietnam, one in China. Mm-hmm. I, I think both of them. I was intrigued by both. I think it's just it's, at the time China was moving so quickly. Yeah, the opportunities were massive. Um, things were developing so fast, uh, and it was probably that that point there that I sort of identified that it was very difficult to. Um, really have a strong relationship with some of your, you know, partners up there and that was the language barrier. So, you know, everyone would like to click their fingers and learn another language. It was something that I wanted to do. And then, yeah, through a number of different things, uh, you know, I did a little bit in the mining space like most young guys in in mm-hmm. WA. We sort of you lured in during that boom time for some quick money. Yeah. Um, that sort of was great. That was probably I worked with my brother on another little project there where we actually uh, developed some maintenance management software, and that was probably the first sort of you know have a look into that space. And then uh, went up to China. That allowed me a bit of time to go to China, live in China, and yeah, that's probably where it all started. Hmm. Ah, that's fantastic because you've mentioned now this is then your second tech product, but you're a non-technical founder yourself working in the tech space. Are there any special tips and tricks that you've picked up for founding a tech product when you're non-technical yourself? Yeah, I think it's a good question that. Uh, it's sort of I think it's you, you need to learn fast and I, I think the biggest problem we were having is not being able to convey what we wanted. I think, um, you know, it's very easy to assume, you know, you plug the the cord into the wall and electricity comes out but not knowing what's behind the wall and we're trying to guide guys to build something behind the wall that delivers mm. the electricity mm. what we want. So I think uh, we, you know, have evolved a lot in being able to, you know, develop functional build lists and things that um, communicate exactly what we want. I think it probably, Reese and I probably sit more if you were to define that sort of role as a product manager, um, which I still only quite don't quite understand what they do, but I, I imagine it's mm-hmm. um, yeah putting two and two together and, and sort of um, and I think one thing is we assume that people understand what we want when we we guide the developers, but it's not always the case. So you know mm-hmm. it, it's being sort of bridge that gap and make mm-hmm. sure that everyone's on the same page. Who's been doing your tech? We're fortunate uh, we had some, uh, our team in China sort of uh, part okay. of the business and they invested. And so we have a, a Chinese development team. We have some local development team as well. Uh, you know, they're outsourced to local guys but a great team. Um, so, it, we're, again, because we have a consumer-facing element, that all needs to be done in China right. um, by the Chinese teams and then we've got a sort of pretty heavy back end uh, and that's where we plug in the Australian guys. Presumably it has to be hosted in China as well, would it? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, and all sorts of difficulties. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a number of different licences and things that need to occur. Yeah. Um, and because we're taking data from obviously Australia, you know, all the way through, there is a transfer of data between the two. Uh, so making sure that that all works smoothly isn't easy, but um, yeah. So what are some of the things you've learned about doing business in China and with China that maybe 
Kelly and I would, and the people listening would have no idea. What have you learned mm. along the way that you didn't know at the beginning? Yeah. And maybe wish you had. Oh, yeah, good question. I think there's not one sort of definitive big, big thing, a big thing that I would do or know more about China. I think, I think you need to go approach China expecting it not to be easy. Mm. Um, it, it's just, it's a complicated market. It's, um, and for that reason, it's um, that's probably the most thing that excites us. When we look at Latitude 28 and the other markets where we want to hit, we mm. if it was if it was an easy market, an easy international market, then everyone will be all right. over it. So right. it, it, where there's difficulties is probably the biggest opportunity for us as a an advantage team. in a way. Advantage, if you can yeah. crack it, then yeah. you're going to see no, less competitors. I'm not saying we've cracked <laughs> it, but um, yeah. yeah, we've probably got the tenacity to. To, to do it. Is there um, another international company that you look up to or admire in the way that they've managed to get into that market or somebody that you say, if we could emulate what XY has achieved, that would be something aspirational for you? Oh, look, there's a lot of great brands that have done well in China. I think Bellamy's have done an amazing effort if to, to, to create a you know a direct correlation to something similar. I think um, They've they've gone about it very well, uh, but there's there's a lot of lot of brands and you know there's some the big wine brands that have done well, um, but yeah I think like in in that front um, we are somewhat different uh, in in what we're doing. Obviously they're very brand and product focused, which we are, but then having to do our own tech is probably the the different differentiator mm. there. Mm. How did you fund it? Um, what can you share about that? Did you did you fund it yourself? Family money? Did you get investors in? Yeah, uh, initially it was all obviously just you know our money and yep. and sweat. Uh, so at the time, Reese and I had a, a consultancy that we were doing a lot of other sort of trade and investment work with China. Hmm. Uh, so that was fortunate, you know, with a bit of the side project at the time, and then that grew into being yeah, hundred percent our core focus. Now we have raised money along the way. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, at at a certain time, to grow organically in that market uh, would, is, I, I believe, would be near on impossible. Right. Um, mm. Yeah, when you do look at how competitive it is, unless you've got something extremely unique, yeah, uh, yeah. which we don't. You know, Australian beef is well and truly through that market. So, um, I so think did you go out to local investors or Chinese investors? A mixture of. High net worths or angels or yeah, so it's, we, we have quite a diverse sort of shareholder base, right. um, and most of it local. We haven't got any sort of foreign ownership in there at the moment, right. uh, and yeah, I think um, th- th- they're sort of people that have joined us along the way. Initially, we looked for um, people that could add value to the business. Mm-hmm. So our chairman was our first founding investor, um, and then he came on as chairman and. And, uh, yeah, it's been great in that, that respect. Was that an easy or a difficult process to try mm. and raise money? Did that take longer than you think or did it happen quite quickly? Oh, no, longer. Right. Yeah, yeah. and very <laughs> distracting to, to, you, yeah. to your yeah. core business. Like it does take a lot of energy away from what you want to do but you, to go forward you need it. So, yeah, yeah, extremely long. And were you already in revenue then or was this to help build a product initially, pre-revenue? What stage were you at when you were? Having yeah. to go and raise that money, we'd already had um, some revenue. So in our first, but it, there's different areas of revenue that we were, we we're achieving with, and yep. then the money raised was to really um, scale what we're doing right. uh, mm. to be able to complete this second iteration of our technology, and then to be able to scale that business, which comes down to that sort of um, customer acquisition. You know, you you need mm. to be able to 
put money behind that to be able to get your uh, product in the eye, in front of the eyes of Chinese consumers. So, uh, you know, generally you've got to pay your way. You know, they're spending their time in different platforms or different, um, you know, e-commerce areas and to get them to see your product, you've, you've just got to pay. That's yep. The, yep. the bottom line. And I think the next sort of challenge is how you retain that customer and that's the mm-hmm. the big um, thing with China. It's, um, yeah, creating a sale is, is one thing but then retaining that customer. And, and become, repeat. Yep. And then growing from there. Yep. Absolutely. So obviously you've set up your product and your marketing to heavily go around the Chinese market. Do you have um, any, any aims to expand beyond that market at any point or will it be a sole China focus for now? No, one of our major sort of uh, focuses is that we, we with any business you can't be sole market dependent. So mm-hmm. th- we do need to and we are working across other markets but we, we the way we approach markets is we, we do a lot of research and we make sure we know uh, what we want to do in that market before we enter it. So we're currently you know, in, the, in the mix of Japan and uh, doing some other stuff into sort of different areas of Southeast Asia. But, you know, China, you know, does um, – not demand, but for, from our perspective, it is a big market that we need to focus on, but, you know, other markets need to be considered. Mm. So in about five years' time, what does success look like for Latitude 28? Yeah, I think for us, success, look, I think once you, you go into that, um, you know, raising raising money, uh, you do have to be driven to create a liquidity event in the future. So mm. success for us would be delivering value to shareholders uh, that can only occur from from a number of things, uh, you know, whether it's a market listing or a trade sale. But um, there's that would be, a, I'd believe, a success you know, delivering that value to shareholders, and I think that needs to be rewarded. They're the people that have backed us, mm. and um, I think so. That's what I would sort of consider a success. Mm. Okay. Well, good luck with that. We're going to finish with some rapid, quick fire questions. So. First thing that comes to your head. Yep. Doesn't have to be one word, but just okay. whatever pops into your head, go for it. Kelly's going to start. Absolutely. What's the single most important factor that makes a successful startup? I'd say grit. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people say that. I think that's a good one. Founder as solo or founder as team? I'd say team. I've never done anything without my brother. So, yeah, I've never done it on my own. Yeah, team. So, who should we interview next? I should probably interview him and just uh, <laughs> fact get check, the real story. Yeah, fact check everything that I've said. Yeah, um, yeah, I like not, it. I'm not too sure. Yeah, maybe him. Yeah. yeah. And AI, like it or loathe it? Like it. We're we're adopting it into our system, so cool. I can't can't sort of avoid it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you were at a bar, what would you be ordering? Oh, a pretty simple bloke. It's just a swan draft for me. <laughs> Excellent. I like it. And it's great we can go back to bars again. Um, what does self-care look like for you? Self-care, yeah, uh, I, I believe and, and do meditate a lot. I think uh, for me, I've got a young family and, uh, you know, obviously a lot of stresses, so without that, you know, I probably would uh, explode at one point. Yeah, great. And what are you reading or listening to right now? Reading, I'm actually reading uh, the Rip, Cor- Rip Curl story, um, okay. which I've sort of read oh. and put down and picked up again. I think mm. it's a great uh, story that reminds you that, business should be fun. I think those guys have, uh, if you read their story, which mm. I'm only sort of halfway through, but it just, um, it seems like they had a, a wild ride the whole way through. So I sort of pick it up when I need to remind myself that 
things should be fine. The Rip Curl story. Good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, James, and thanks for that book recommendation as well. We'd like to wish you and your team all the best for the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors. Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and made possible by support from Spacecube Coworking Spaces, the New Industries Fund, Curtin University, and our new sponsor, RSM. Whoa, welcome on board, <laughs> RSM. Yep. And we recorded this podcast in the Rift Studios in beautiful downtown Perth, Western Australia. Don't forget to subscribe to Startup West on your favourite pod platform so our latest episodes will wing their way to your device. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm.